How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the church it as suspicious? Trying to hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers, I would but they never don't even be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy now today, this episode is going to be about bodies and shame and how so much of the church culture creates shame and guilt and taboo around our bodies. I'm actually just going to talk about that a little bit in the beginning to sort of paint that picture of why it is that so many people who go through so much of the dominant church culture end up with issues of shame, guilt around bodies and sexuality. So I'm going to I'm going to sort of paint that picture in the beginning. But I want to do that in order to really talk about advent and the incarnation of the divine in the human body of Jesus and what that has to say about our bodies. So I wanna begin by painting a little bit of a picture, but then I really wanna move into what does, what does the incarnation say about being an embodied human being? What does Christmas have to do with feeling sexy? So let's, let's begin with a little bit of what I was talking about. There is so much shame that people carry around in and around and connected to their bodies. You know, it it is amazing how we all only have one body and yet at the same time, it is so hard for us to feel completely at home, comfortable in and confident through our bodies. And you see these issues popping up in all different kinds of places. So let's look at a couple things. One, I would argue that we live in a culture where people cannot age gracefully. Do you know what I'm talking about? We live in a culture where people, where it's, where it's, it's an environment where it's so hard for people just to be able to age and feel good and feel celebrated and feel still at home in their bodies. And one of the places you see this most visibly is in Hollywood. Now, sometimes when I see pictures, sometimes when I see people who who are in films or shows I haven't seen for a long time, I have this thought to myself. And when I say it, there's a joking tone about it, but it's actually a really serious thing when I see it. And the thought is this. Sometimes I'll see a picture of somebody, I think this, one of the hardest things about growing up is watching your heroes completely change their faces to look younger. You ever had that experience? You haven't seen this actor or there was an actor or an actress who you loved 
20 years ago and maybe you don't see him as much, then all of a sudden you see a picture and you're like, oh my gosh, like what happened? And it's not a judgment and it's not a shame thing when I see it at all, but I'm like, I, I get, you know, doing little things. I totally get all that. I understand the pressure. That's why there's no judgment. But I'm like, you you change your face. Like that almost doesn't look like you when you were young. Not when you were younger, but that's not how your face looks before all this. And it just, it like weirdly hurts me. And I, not, not like I personalize it, but I'm in shock because of what people do to their, they change people. It's, it's common to completely change your face in order to look younger. And our culture has so normalized that, that with celebrities changing their faces through surgery, it's like, we don't even think twice. I mean, in 2016, the plastic surgery industry was an $8 billion a year industry. $8 billion a year people are spending to change their bodies. Why? Because on one level, we want to feel more at home. We want to feel better. We want to feel more confident. And I'm going to say it again. There's no judgment towards people because I understand the pressure. But what that does show us is we have a hard time being at home in our bodies. We have a hard time being us. And we carry a lot of shame around our bodies and our looks. We see advertisements constantly that are convincing us that we're lacking something in how we look. I mean, every single advertisement is essentially saying there's a problem that you might have and there's a solution that we have. So, so much of the products that are being sold are, are, are being sold through us struggling to feel good, confident, and comfortable in our own skin right there's when you have a culture that that doesn't allow people to age gracefully you know we have some, an unhealthy relationship with our bodies okay here's another thing when you look at the church specifically so much of the people so much of people who have grown up in through with and around the church saying the past 30 to 40 years have grown up with this sort of atmosphere of a purity culture Right? There's this entire culture of purity for little boys and girls who are growing up and learning what it means to be a good follower of Jesus. Now, there's so much great work written about purity culture. There's so many, there's so many women who have written just amazing books on purity culture and how that's affected us. So I'm not going to go into great details on it today. But what, ended up ha what, what, what has ended up happening to an entire generation of people is you have so many people, especially girls, because there's such an, a different emphasis on what it means to grow up as a, as a girl or a young woman in purity culture and as a Christian and as in the church, where so many people have ended up feeling like damaged goods. Do you know what I'm talking about? So many girls believing they aren't as much of a gift or they aren't as valuable to their spouses because they had sex before they were married. 
so many girls who have felt uncomfortable, unconfident, or they've had so much shame and guilt just around their bodies and sexuality because they've grown up in a culture that is completely obsessed with it. It's, it's a church culture that's completely obsessed with sexuality, but it's always around the negative prohibitions, what not to do, and really a big form of taboo. And here's the thing, right? So there's so much shame around bodies for, for men and women, right? And when I came into the church into my 20s, I, one of the things that surprised me the most, right, like conservative, evangelical, charismatic kind of a, a culture I was around, I was in shock how many young men had serious porn addictions. It was weird. Before I came to the church, I didn't even know that was a thing. Obviously, I knew what porn was, and it was kind of like not that big of a deal, like normal growing up. But I'm like, wow, these dudes are talking about like addiction to porn, like my friends who are strung out on meth or strung out on, you know, what we would consider to be harder drugs. I had never seen that sort of wide, you know, experience of addiction to porn. Now, that's a hard thing. I understand that. Like, that's a really serious thing. But I'm like, when you have shame around bodies, uncomfortability, guilt, now we are struggling with porn addiction, right? All these things. I'm like, when you constantly talk about something and put it up on this crazy pedestal, and whenever you do it, it's it's prohibition, meaning don't do it, it's it's darkness, it's sin. What do you expect to happen to people where you're constantly talking about the one thing we're what, not supposed to feel or do or engage in? It's like you're making people obsessed with it because you're constantly talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus is somehow connected with whether or not we're having sex or our bodies. And you wonder why people are struggling with addiction and, and obsession with it because there's a culture that's like you want purity, but it's always talked about. Now there's addiction because there's darkness and taboo. And I've seen people caught up in really some entangled webs of shame, addiction, and desire that really take a long time to get out of. Because you have to remember, prohibition generates desire. Meaning when somebody tells you not to do something enough, they're actually creating the desire within you to do it. So I think the massive prohibition in the culture, along with obsession with purity, has created this strong sense of desire and also an absolute inability to know what to do with all of that. I'm going to get into some more of that. So I could say a lot more because there's so much to be said about purity culture, about sexuality in the church. But I would say it seems like if the church is in therapy, it seems like the church has a hard time feeling at home in her own body. We have a hard time feeling at home in our bodies. And so much of the purity obsessed with sexuality culture has not helped kids grow up into a healthy embodied spirituality and sexuality. and has actually created a lot of darkness, taboo, and obsession and weirdness 
around it, right? You probably have all of your own, even as I'm saying that, you probably have all of your own stories and versions and things that have been done, sermons that you've heard and what it's done to you, right? We, we're all on a journey to feel at home in our bodies. But the church has, seems to have a hard time feeling at home in her body, at least the church that needs therapy right now. So with that said, let's talk about Advent. John 1.14. The writer writes, when he's talking about this, this prologue, this poetic way of talking about the incarnation of God coming fully in Jesus, one of the phrases he uses in John 1.14 is that the word became flesh. Right? The word here is not the Bible. The word is the eternal and universal Christ. Right, That eternal word became flesh in Jesus. Here's the thing that's so amazing about that and why Advent and Christmas have so much to say about what it means to feel at home in our bodies. The, in the Christmas story, right? Advent, the, the season leading up to Christmas. The Christmas story shows us that the human body became the ultimate medium for the spirit of God to be expressed. Flesh and blood became the place where God was the most present in creation. This organic mix of blood, hair, skin, glands, tissue, muscles, joints, and bones is the space God chose to reveal himself in the most clear way to the world. So much of Christian teaching created an artificial divide and antagonism between the spiritual and the material between spirit and body, right? Between the soul and flesh. And this dualistic way of seeing is precisely what Jesus came to reveal as a lie in the incarnation. Which is why I would say this, the incarnation is the divine affirmation of the goodness of the human body. Christmas is the divine affirmation of the goodness of of the human body, right? If you want to look up something that is sure to bring some tears to your eyes, type into YouTube today when you hear this. Type in Lizzie Howell dancing, right? If you and if you look at the one, if you look at the video that comes up, if you type into the the filters, the one that has the most views, that one will get you. But if you want to have a good cry in a good way. Type in Lizzie Howell dancing. Now Lizzie Howell, in think 2017 at 15 years old, she posted an Instagram video of herself. She's a ballerina doing a bunch of what my daughter would call spin moves. I'm sure there's a very technical French word for that. But she's doing these spin moves like on her toes where she keeps doing it. And the video went viral, I think it got 10 million views in a very short amount of time. And it went viral because Lizzie does not have a conventional body for being a ballerina, right? The expected body that you think most ballerinas would have, Lizzie defies that because Lizzie happens to be bigger than most of the other girls who are dancing, right? Now, I, re, I, I remember looking at this video years ago, 
And I just rewatched it to prepare for this. And I was like, I already shed tears on this a long time ago. I'm not going to do it again. And this eight minute video, I was just like, ah, like, just do that spin move. Just do those freaking spin moves. And they're like, well, it's called a pirouette. I'm like, I don't care what it is. Just freaking spin, girl, spin. Oh my gosh. I, I think I almost got emotional just thinking about it right now. Now I will say... Up until 18 years old, I completely shut off my emotions because at that point, that's what I thought it meant to, you know, be a man. So I like shut my emotions off for so long that I became cold that when I encountered God at 18 and I started to become more embodied, more aligned and more in tune with the spirit and more okay with myself. I feel like ever since then, since I balled them up for so long, my emotions just come out in unexpected places. Like always in the in, in special moments. And then I like tears, but I'll just get like my eyes will well up with tears. Like I think three or four nights ago, my wife was decorating for Christmas. My two-year-old son's just running around. I'm laying on our floor playing memory with my four-year-old daughter. There's Christmas music playing. And I had this moment where I looked at everything. I was fully present and aware of just the sacredness and the fullness of Christ in that moment. And I'm just laying there playing memory and my eyes are just like welled up with tears out of nowhere. My, my daughter looked at me, she'd be like, Dad, why are you crying? I'm only up four to two. Like you still got a chance. Oh man. But if you watch that video of Lizzie Howe, it will move you. And I think that video is so moving because you see somebody who a culture is saying your body is not, is not going to be celebrated here. She's in a culture where they're saying your body doesn't fit here. Your body doesn't work here. Your body doesn't have a place here. Your body isn't beautiful here. Your body shouldn't be in the light here. And you see someone in their embodied existence defying the cultural boundaries and expectations and norms of what beauty is when it comes to the body in that culture. And she's just shining. And it's so, so powerful. God being at home in Christ's body is an invitation for us to be at home in our body. I'm going to say that again. God being at home in Christ's body is an invitation for us to be at home in our body. Come on. All right, a couple more things. Now in 1 Timothy, I'm going to read uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. There was this religious group, this early church in Ephesus, who had some serious issues with sexuality, which, by the way, all those early churches did, and all of our modern churches do today as well. And this is where Paul and these early Christians, as they're forming this new community in Christ, I would argue are offering a better and more embodied way forward to these people. First, First Timothy 4, verses 2 through 5. Such teachings come through starting with verse three, actually. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Whether it's Paul or whoever's writing this, they definitely are going for it. Do you, well, hey, hey, Paul, do you like that person? Well, they are a hypocritical liar, and their conscience has been seared with a hot iron. Okay, wow. <laughs> I'll take that as a strong no. 
right? They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There was always issues with food and sexuality because food and sexuality were always connected with local gods, deities, and religious sort of practices. Verse four, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. So Paul makes this distinction between the inherent goodness of something and the abuse of it. See, Paul shows us something can be good, but still be abused. But when it's abused, that doesn't mean it's bad now. Just because something can be abused and distorted doesn't mean that it's bad, wrong, or evil. People may have a distorted view of food or sexuality or the body, but that does not mean they are inherently evil or bad. And Paul insists that everything God created is good. And that through the word of God and prayer, we are able to relate to our bodies and sexuality in a healthy and life-giving way. Paul's saying it's not as simple as just avoiding it, right? That's so much of the, of the sort of youth groupy church culture is just pure prohibition and avoidance. And that doesn't work. So when anything that strong has to get pushed into darkness and shadows, it gets powerful and weird and distorted and deformed and twisted. It's, it's not as simple as acting like our bodies aren't important. It's not as simple as acting like we're not sexual beings because we are. What Paul is saying is that there is a way forward with wisdom that honors the good gift of the body and sexuality. There's a way to handle it without abusing it. This is why I want to talk about angels and animals. This idea of angels and animals originally came from the writer Blaise Pascal, but it was also developed further by the mystic Thomas Merton in the 20th century. But what they're saying is human beings have a tendency to either act like we're an angel or to act like we're an animal. See, to, to somehow live as if we're angels is to try to live as if we're a spirit without a body. But then when we live like animals, it's to live as if we are just bodies without a spirit. See, when we deny the bodily, we try to live like angels. But when we deny the spiritual, we can live like angels animals. Let me give you a couple examples of each. Let's talk about honeymoons, right? Honeymoons are supposed to be magical and perfect and amazing and mind-blowing and everything our little hearts have ever desired, right? That's the culture we live in. The, the, the wedding is a, is a fairy tale and the honeymoon is a fantasy island adventure, basically. As pastors, as guides, my wife as a therapist, we've heard a lot of stories of how honeymoons are not exactly the perfect fairy tales that they're supposed to be. We've heard stories, specifically since we're talking about the church, there's so many stories 
of Christian couples who have grown up in the church who go on their honeymoon and are having sex for, or who are trying to have sex for the first time and it just goes so bad, so, so bad, right? There's, there's, it's like even though they're married, there's still guilt about, you know, sexuality and, and, and being free with your partner, right? You're married, but there's still so much shame attached to my body and there's so much uncomfortability around my body. There's so much embarrassment around the body. There's so much, how, like, let, let's flash for those couples or let's say one individual within the couple, but then it affects the couple, whatever it is. The moment you've been waiting for your whole life or the moment that was supposed to be this perfect experience is now frustrating, is embarrassing, is humiliating, is surrounded by shame to the point where you try a few times and it doesn't work or you get uncomfortable. Now the couple's fighting and now you're supposed to, in the perfect moment, now you're fighting, now you feel like you ruined the honeymoon, now that your shame spirals even more and now there's so much pressure built up around trying to have sex that you don't even want to try because you don't want to feel that way again and now couples are on their honeymoon and they're not even being able to express their love, to, to experience each other, to experience intimacy when it comes to sexuality and their physical bodies. Now let's, let's flash back. It wasn't like growing up the, it was like the, for some of them in youth group, it was like the body wasn't even a thing because they were trying to act like angels. Nobody talked to them about owning their body. They didn't talk about what healthy sexuality was except for waiting. So here's this person 25, 30 years later who's completely uncomfortable with their body, feels shame about their body, feels guilty having sex even though they're married. And things happen like this all the time. So much of the church acts like we're angels and we end up doing a lot of damage to people in the process. So one of the ways we go is we're angels, we're spirits without bodies, and we don't know what to do with our bodies. Now, the person who struggles to honor their body because they don't see the spirit side of it, it's so easy to allow it to be objectified or to objectify others, right? So let's talk about animals now. There's a story about a kid I grew up with. Right, a kid I love a lot. He was a great beneath me. His older brother is my best friend. And I think my freshman year of college, I found out that my friend, this kid, had gotten arrested. I think he did maybe three to four years in prison at the time. And after a few years of college, my wife and I get married. We move to Orange County in California for about five years. And I heard he got out of prison and he was working, I don't know if it's construction, he was working something. And so we needed some things put up in our house and I asked him if he wanted to do it. He said yes. So we reconnected after a long time together. And we have a good rapport, like so much time's passed, but this is like a, this is like family to me. This is like my brother. We've been through a lot together, right? So there's a comfortability there. And he's putting all, I remember it was around Christmas actually, he's putting stuff around, up around our house and when he's done, I'm like, okay, so like, what what do you got going on after this? And he's just telling me, oh, I'm gonna go hook up with this chick. And so me 
being the type of person that I am where I like to like mess with people in a serious way to get them to kind of see things differently, I sort of start to kind of push him on that. So I say, well, do you like this girl? Do you care about her? And he's like, well, she's cool, but nah, I mean, I don't really like her like that that much. So I say, oh, so it's not really that you like her. It's just that you like what she does for you. Oh, I get it. You just like what she does for you. And he's like, because for him, it's no big deal. I was like, yeah, basically. So I keep pushing. I'm like, oh, you don't really want her. You want something from her. Right? You're not going to be there for her. You're not going to be faithful to her. You're just going to use her to get what you want. I mean, she's she's like an object to you. And he's like, uh, I'm like, well, what does that say about how you really view her if you just want to use her to get what you want? And he kind of gets where I'm going with it. And he goes, dude, I know what you're saying. But think about it. She's doing the same thing to me. And I said, you're right. Then what does that say about how you view yourself? What does that mean when you have no problem with somebody else treating you like an object? What does it mean that you let somebody just use you and then get rid of you when they want? Don't you think you're worth more than that? Because I do. And in that moment, he just looked at me and he said, I'm not going to say, but he's basically like, F you, Sweeney. And he kind of started laughing because he's like, I don't want to think about this, dude. For him, it's like, I'm just going to hook up with the girl. I don't want to think about the sacredness of who I am, right? He was objectifying her. She was objectifying him. And for him, that's how those transactions go. See, the first person was okay with spirit, but didn't know what to do with their body. The second person was okay with the body, but didn't know what to do with spirit and their internal inherent dignity. And the biblical vision of humanity is both spirit and skin. And we have to learn how to celebrate and honor both of those together. See, in the creation story, read Genesis 2, let's just say, read Genesis 2, 7. God breathing life into the Ha-Adam. It's not Adam as a person. It's into the human. In this creation story, which is one of the defining stories for the entire Bible, there is no shame. There's no tension. There's no uncomfortability from God about spirit and flesh being woven together. The creation of human beings proclaims that matter and spirit have never been separate. They have always been one. Your skin and your body is a part of who you are. Spirit is entangled with skin and your body is not some your body is not something you need to overcome. It's something you need to become. Your body is not something that's supposed to be tolerated. It is something in the biblical tradition that's supposed to be celebrated. Christmas means that your body is supposed to be celebrated. There's a story about this little boy who probably heard the term sexy for the first time. Maybe he's like five years old. So he goes up and goes, Mommy, what does it mean to be sexy? And this brilliant mom and her like mom wisdom and compassion says, Well, buddy, sexy is when it feels good to be in your own skin. Sexy is when your own body just feels right, when it feels comfortable. And she says, sexy is when you love being you. So he runs off. He's like, 
oh, mom, I am sexy. <laughs> and he just runs back to playing. But this is a brilliant and powerful and such a cute story. And here's the thing. Incarnation, the word becoming flesh, the divine being the ultimate sight, or the body being the ultimate sight of divine revelation in Jesus. Christmas is about the divine being born out of an actual human being. It's the ultimate affirmation of the goodness and the sacredness of the human body. Mary is going to carry the fullness of God within her. Her 14-year-old body becomes the site for the ultimate revelation of God. Christmas is the cosmic celebration of the human body. Christmas teaches us that it's okay to feel comfortable and confident and at home in our bodies. And based on what that mom says, Christmas shows us what it truly means to feel sexy. You can quote me on that one. Christmas shows us what it truly means to feel sexy because sexy is when you love being you and you feel at home in your body. See, being connected with God should lead us to being at peace in our body. Being connected with God should lead us to being at peace in our bodies. So I want to end with this blessing, this prayer that St. Teresa of So for those of you listening, for those of you tuned in, I want to end with this blessing for you to receive. When we think about the uncomfortability, the shame, and how it's a long journey to grow and to feel fully at home in our bodies. But also, would we dare to see this Advent and this Christmas as a time where God shows us that Christmas is the ultimate affirmation of the human body. That God being at home in Christ's body is an invitation for us to be at home in our body. So I want to end with this blessing. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, Yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours.